Galatians 3, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. During this short five-week series, we have learned again and again about God's grace. I hope that you see that Reformed theology is a robust explanation of the unpacking of the gospel of grace. That's what we've wanted to look at in these weeks together. God's grace, loved ones, is not a substance pumped into us. It is God's saving favor to us in Jesus. It is not only unmerited favor, it's demerited favor, because we deserve judgment, hell, and the wrath and curse of God. But it is merited for us by Christ. So the grace of God says this, Christ himself has come to purchase a bride. Who is that bride? Well, it's a bride that was born dead in sin, but was chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world, not by anything we have done, but according to his purpose and love and grace. That same bride that was chosen, Jesus died for. Every one of your sins has been paid for, dear Christian. And the Holy Spirit has effectually called those sinners that Jesus died for to repent and to believe and to trust in Jesus. And those whom he has called, he will complete the work in. What God starts, God finishes. This is incredibly important today, loved ones, as we look at the fifth head of doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. Can someone who's a believer today become an unbeliever tomorrow? Can you believe today as a Christian and fall from grace next week? What about a year from now? Ten years, 30 years, 40 years? Will you still be a Christian at age 90 if you're still alive? The answer God gives to those who are in Christ is you cannot fall from grace. God will preserve you 
The journey will be hard, but God's assurance of grace is there for you in Christ. We want to look at that today in Galatians 3, but a number of other passages. We're going to kind of take a tour, as the canons of Dort say, of the Bible to look at these incredibly encouraging passages. First, how did you come to faith? Well, last time we saw this, didn't we? Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us from death to life. That's the answer to this question. But Paul says to the Galatians, it's like someone has put you under a trance. Now, maybe you ate turkey a few days ago and you felt afterwards like you're in a trance. Maybe still this morning you're kind of sluggish. Well, this is actually an interesting word, Galatians 3 verse 1. It's as if a sorcerer had cast a spell upon them, and they're under a hypnotic kind of delusion. What's going on here? Why would Paul say that? Well, remember, he's talking here in Galatians to churches that he planted. He has been gone from them for some time, and during the time he's away, some false teachers have crept in, and they have denied the gospel, and they're misleading the Galatians. So they really weren't under a hypnotic trance. But he's using that word to say one of Satan's strategies is to distort the truth so that people cannot tell the difference between the true gospel of grace and something that's false. Galatians, he's saying, some Judaizers have come in. Now, we know that throughout the rest of the book, meaning they're distorting what God has done for you in Christ. They are Jews who became Christians in Galatia, but they're saying that in order to continue to be a Christian, you have to obey enough the law of God, submit to circumcision and some other badges of ethnic Israel. This is a classic move by a legalist. Legalism in the New Testament is a view that has a distortion of obedience, a distortion that can never produce good works. What is a good work? Well, it's done according to the law of God, by faith in Christ, to the glory of God, out of love for God and for others. But a legalist will always, in arrogance, skew the purpose of doing good works. It's never out of love for God never out of love for someone else. It squeezes kindness out of the apple. Just every ounce is gone. It's arrogant of those who don't serve or do what the legalist himself is doing. Paul himself goes after the Judaizers who are legalists. Jesus, if you remember earlier in the New Testament, talks of the legalism of the Pharisees. And what are they both doing? They're denying the gospel. The gospel that Paul says here in Galatians was revealed where? In the Old Testament. The Judaizers had misunderstood Abraham. That's why Paul goes to Abraham here in Galatians 3. Do you know that the Old Testament is 77% of your Bible? Is the gospel there? Or is there a different method of salvation there? That's what Paul is getting at. Yes, he says the gospel's there. He goes back to Galatians, uh, uh, Genesis 15. He says, Abraham, Genesis 15, was credited with righteousness. 
Not because he earned it. Not because he was circumcised. He was circumcised 14 years after Genesis 15. He was credited with righteousness because by God's grace he believed in the promise of a Savior to come. The gospel, Paul says, was preached beforehand to Abraham. Do you see that in Galatians 3? An incredible reality, meaning there is not two different methods of salvation. There is one plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Abraham looked forward to that promise. We look back upon what Christ has done and look forward to his return. There is one people of God. There is one covenant of grace. Those who believe by faith in Christ are children of Abraham. Because in Christ, all the promises made to Abraham have been fulfilled. When the Bible is speaking here, Galatians 3 verse 8, God is speaking. The authority of God's word is the authority of God himself. So what's Paul getting at? The gospel, which is proclaiming the good news that through his perfect life of obedience to God's law, Jesus himself earned perfect righteousness. Through his death on the cross, he took our sin on himself. Through his resurrection, he defeated Satan and sin and the devil. And he has done everything Christ has that God requires for your salvation. That's the good news of the gospel. It was preached to Abraham. It's preached to us today. It was announced right after the fall in Genesis 3.15. Abraham heard that preaching. And that means, dear Christian, that God is not working a different way today than he did back then. Here's a side note for why this is important. This matters for us. It matters for those who live around us. One man says that Nazism in Germany advanced in part because Christianity was deconstructed at every major German seminary. A higher critic influenced one of the philosophers of the Third Reich who called the Old Testament a tale of pimps. Hitler called the Old Testament the Bible of Satan. One of the philosophers of the Third Reich blamed the Old Testament in part for the Jewish overlordship in Germany in the 20s. He said this. So he said the Old Testament must be abolished. They replaced it with Nordic paganism plus lip service to a false Jesus. I bring this up because as they threw out the Old Testament, as they threw out many of Paul's writings, this is one of the reasons that led to the rise of Nazism and genocide in Germany, one of them. And it's important for us to know today that the neglect of the Old Testament for the church and the neglect of the gospel preached in the Old Testament in Paul's mind leads to spiritual genocide. This is a crucial matter, Paul is saying. The gospel I preached to you, Galatians 3, is Christ proclaimed, Christ placarded, and it's not just an old event that had no real significance to you anymore, loved ones. 
It is Christ crucified, which is fresh and new to you today. It's not just an interesting intellectual note, but Christ is proclaimed among you today, Christian. And as you trust in him, the benefits of the cross are fresh and new to you today. So Paul says, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Galatians 3, verse 2. As a Christian, do you have the Holy Spirit? Yeah. How did you receive the Spirit? Is it through your obedience? Is it because you did enough to earn God's favor? Paul says, no. It's by faith, by hearing the gospel. The Spirit gave you ears to hear. The external word and the call of God came, along with the internal call. It's not two different events. The Spirit's regenerating work to you was not just moral persuasion, not just a wooing, nor was it coercive. The supernatural work of the Spirit in regeneration is powerful, delightful, astonishing, mysterious, ineffable, meaning too wonderful for words to describe. Do you remember Lydia in Acts? She heard the word preached by Paul. God opened her heart to believe the things that were said. So it is with you, Christian. As we hear the word, we are sealed with the promised spirit. New desires come. New affections come. A new love for God comes. There's an important distinction to be made between regeneration and conversion. Do you remember as we've been talking in this series, definitions matter. And here's why this is important. The two errors are Arminianism on one side, hyper-Calvinism on the other. Here's what Horton says. It's important to distinguish the new birth, effectual calling, from conversion. In the new birth, regeneration, you are passive. You are acted upon and within by the triune God through the gospel. In conversion, you are active, having been activated by grace. You're raised from spiritual death to life, eternal life. If we fail to distinguish this, we fall into the Arminian error of thinking that repentance and faith cause the new birth, or the hyper-Calvinist error of thinking that because the new birth precedes our response, there's no place for our response. Do you see the problems, the ditches? The new birth yields the fruit of repentance and faith, not the other way around. We hear the gospel. The Spirit creates faith in our hearts to embrace it. In conversion, you are active. Not as a condition to fulfill, to be saved, but as a command, believe and repent. As a command that God himself, by his grace, gives you the grace to believe, right? So, so do you see the errors here to avoid? Why does this matter? Because all that Christ has won for us, outside of us in history, is given to us when the Holy Spirit unites you to Christ by faith. Everything. The treasures of union with Christ 
effectual calling, justification, adoption, glorification, and also, as we're going to look at now, sanctification. Secondly, why do you persevere in the faith? The third point on your outline, by the way, has been cut out. Good news for you. Why do you persevere in the faith? Well, Paul says in Galatians 3, you came to faith in Christ with childlike trust. Now that you have come to faith, does that mean to keep yourself saved, you have to do enough to make sure God is pleased with you? Does that mean you've got to attain perfection? That you've got to beat yourself up? That you've got to climb the ladder to finally secure God's favor? Paul says, may it never be. That would deny the gospel that we have just heard, the gospel that Abraham heard and believed. Perseverance of the saints. We need to explain what this means and what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that you, Christian, are exempt from spiritual danger. In fact, now that you are in Christ, the world and Satan are going to want to attack you more and more and bring you down. It also does not mean that as a Christian, you are always kept from falling into sin. If you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here today. We want you to know Christians sin. We're not perfect. We are sinners saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christians sometimes sin in horrendous ways. Noah in his drunkenness. David in his adultery and murder. Peter in denying Christ. That doesn't excuse it, but we need to be honest, loved ones. There's a struggle. Sometimes there are seasons of doubt. Maybe you're in a season of doubt. Sometimes people who claim the name of Christ fall very hard. They backslide. But God never unelects his people. And apart from the grace of God, loved ones, none of us would remain Christians. Do you believe that? Not one of us. We would not stand for a moment on our own. If you're struggling with sin, remember that God will preserve you if you are in Christ. His purpose in election will stand. So can you lose the gift of faith? No. Does that mean you can live however you want? Does that mean God loves to forgive, I love to sin? What a great combination. It does not. Here is an important distortion to avoid on the doctrine of perseverance. It does not lead to easy believism. It does not lead to let's sin and enjoy it and party like it's 1999 and not really repent. It doesn't lead to that. Once saved, always saved. Maybe you've heard of that. That can easily be distorted because someone might say, well, I signed a card, I walked an aisle, I was baptized, I did that, and and now I'm fine. Now I, I can do what I want, right? I'm saved no matter what I do, no matter what I say, no matter how I live? That's not true. Both these things are true at the same time. Those who believe in the name of Jesus have eternal life. And those who do not continue with us 
demonstrate that they were not of us. 1 John 2.19. It is not only our position in Christ in justification, it is also our progression in holiness, sanctification, that the gospel itself gives good news for. Calvinism is not fatalism. God is sovereign. We are responsible. Once saved, always saved. That's true. But we are not saved apart from perseverance. It is those who endure to the end, Matthew 10, who will be saved. God uses means to preserve his people. So we must not think, okay, I just show up and I come to church but I have no love for God, no love for his people, and maybe I show up kind of when I want to, and now I've got this kind of of get-out-of-hell-free card over here. It doesn't work that way, loved ones. God uses the means of church discipline sometimes to bring us back to repentance, to renew us, to restore us. So perseverance of the saints does not lead to moral apathy, to spiritual sluggishness, to growing complacent. It leads to repentance. God wants you to have the assurance of salvation. Do you know that? The canons of Dort talk about the grounds of assurance, not the grounds of justification. That is the imputed righteousness of Christ alone, but the grounds of assurance. Do you know what the canons say for assurance? First, assurance comes by faith in the gospel promises of God. That's what we've been seeing throughout this series. Second, assurance comes by the testimony of the Holy Spirit testifying to your spirit that you are a child of God. Third, assurance comes from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. High levels of disobedience and unrepentance are incompatible with Christian assurance. Holiness is a ground for assurance, and the desire for assurance is a motivation for holiness. Both go together. Do you remember last week we said we're going to pick up on some of the results of sanctification, or, or of regeneration, the results? Here's some of them. Something drastic happens when you are regenerated. It affects you to your roots, New loves, new affections. Not perfection, but you are a new creation in Christ. So if you are kind of coasting through your spiritual life, which we all can tend to do, we need to remember we are saved from something for something. From wrath and judgment for God in his glory and communing with him and enjoying him. There should be a change. We're saved not by good works, but for good works, to good works. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. So God's great grace to us produces by the Spirit a love for him and each other, that we want to please and honor him. Do we struggle there? Yes. Is it a daily battle? Yes. The sign of God's grace to you is that it is a struggle. That you say like Paul, 
The good I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Wretched man that I am. That's a sign of God's grace. We are not what we once were. We are not yet what we will be. By the grace of God, we are in Christ who we are. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness, Titus says, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Is this hard? Yeah. Are there signs that we are growing spiritually? That's a good question for us to ask. Here's how one person puts it. The man or woman or boy or girl whose soul is growing takes more interest in spiritual things every year. Sometimes there are hard years. They don't neglect their callings in the world. They fulfill them. But the love of the world seems to have an increasing, a decreasing hold on their heart. So here's how Kevin DeYoung says. Do I love Jesus a little more this year and football a little less? That's a good question for me. It's okay to love football, to enjoy football, but do I love Jesus a little more? How about spiritual conversations? Do I long for them? How about my time? Do I long to spend time in the Word more and maybe some of these other things a little less? Not that you go into a cave and become a monk. That's not the point. Fulfilling your calling, but is there a desire, a love for Jesus? Are the things that truly taste best tasting better? It's a good question to ask. Here's a sign of regeneration. We're dependent upon God and confident that he will do what he can do. So it's a a change of attitude, an absolute dependence upon God, dying to pride. Reshape priorities. A sign of God's work in our hearts is that we come up with excuses less often. We're all tempted to find excuses for things, right? Excuses not to serve, not to come to worship, not to show hospitality, all sorts of things. And there's all different struggles that we have in our lives with sickness and disability. I'm not trying to to ignore that, but I'm saying excuses that aren't really real, right? That we all come up with. Do I have less excuses? A sign of the work of regeneration and perseverance? Redirected prayers. Are we praying for God's kingdom to come, his will to be done? Are we praying for sanctification, for God to save dead sinners? Some of those things. The prayer meeting is a great way that we seek the face of God in these areas. Am I less nitpicky on fellow believers? That's a sign. Am I less prone to kind of want to look into their heart and assume their motives and complain and criticize them? Am I less prone to self-righteousness? Those are signs. Perseverance does not mean that everyone who professes Christ is born again. There are warning passages in the Bible. We talked about Hebrews 6 about a year and a half ago. We're not going to go into it today. But the warnings come to the visible covenant community. First John They left us because they didn't belong to us. If they had belonged, they would have remained. So the painful sorrow of a loved one, a friend, a church member that you don't see anymore, and you know they're not going to church anywhere, and perhaps their sin kept them from church, and now 
as they stay away from church, their sin is hardening them. That's a painful, tear-filled reality. John experienced it. Paul experienced it. Loved ones. This is a, a serious warning to help you persevere and to remind us to pray for those in our lives that we think perhaps for a time maybe are 1 John 2. We don't know for sure. We pray God would renew, renew them to repentance, but a reminder to pray. It's through the means of grace God preserves his people. The word, the sacraments, and prayer. Those are the means that God renews us to repentance. What about some other passages? Remember I said we're going to do a a tour of some passages? Well, you don't have to look all these up, but we're going to look at what God promises to his people. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Loved ones, if you have eternal life now by grace through faith in Jesus, you cannot lose it. It is yours by grace. You begin to enjoy it now, you will enjoy it one day forever. Why? Because of Romans 8. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Perseverance of the what? Saints. Who are the saints? Not those who are born holy. We're all born dead in sin. Those who are called out. Those who are justified. Those who are kept by God. Ephesians 1. Do you know that if you're in Christ, you have a seal, a promise, a deposit, a guarantee? Do you know what that is? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit has been given to you, loved ones, as the inheritance of what is to come. What's to come? A glorified body that is incorruptible in the new heaven and the new earth. That the work of Jesus is not only in in your heart good news, but good news that the whole creation is groaning for. And it's good news for your soul and for your body. Jesus came to redeem you body and soul. The whole creation one day will be remade. It'll be made new. The Holy Spirit living in you right now is the guarantee that that will happen on the day of Christ's return. John 6, 37. Jesus says, all the Father gives me will what? Come to me. See how outward call and effectual call? And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. See how there's a connection here between calling and perseverance. And that's an assurance, not only of salvation now, but of eternal, heavenly salvation. John 10, Jesus says, I know my sheep. We heard this earlier. They follow me. See the connection? Those that God knows, by his grace, follow him. And what? I give them eternal life. There's that promise again. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Are there dangers you face? Yeah. 
Can anyone snatch you out of Jesus' hand? No, but not only Jesus' hand. What does Jesus say in John 10, 30? No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So as one person says, Jesus is holding on to you with one arm, the Father is holding on to you with another arm, and they both have other arms still. Now, this is not literal. The Father doesn't have an arm, but, but it's a picture of God's sovereign protecting grace upon you, kept by the Son, kept by the Father. Psalm 37, our call to worship. God will not forsake who? His saints. How long are you preserved? Forever. So this is again a promise in the Old Testament as well as the New. Romans 8, 35. Who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? When you ask a question like that, you want an implied answer. So I say, what is fun about going to the dentist? And you all say, nothing. I'm kidding, kind of. A rhetorical question. Who will separate you from the love of Christ? Paul says, how about trouble or persecution? No. How about your past? How about all the sin of your past? No. How about the future and the unknowns of what awaits? No. How about chronic illness? No. How about death itself? No. What about a broken heart? No. Chronic pain? No. What about your anger, lust, fear, loneliness, depression? None of those things can separate you, Christian, from the love of God in Christ. What about our stubbornness, our self-will, our doubt? Those things cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ. His love is stronger than your failures. These doctrines are for our comfort in life, in death, when we have children that are wandering from the Lord, this is a word to parents of prodigal children. If your children are Christ's own, then please know that as Christ prayed for Peter, he is praying for your children now. Sometimes they will come home to the Lord, not in our time, but in God's time. Sometimes the wait is a lifetime but we trust in the Lord to bring home his children. This is comforting for those who have loved ones with Alzheimer's or loved ones that are in a coma. Alzheimer's, a coma, mental faculties that go away cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ. Philippians says this, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will what? Carry it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. What God starts, God finishes. And Emmaus wrote, I think this is an encouraging word, Philippians 1, 6, for us. Paul planted the church of Philippi about 10 years before he wrote Philippians. Here we are today, by God's grace, 10 years after we first met for corporate worship. Maybe you've been here one week 
Maybe you've been here 10 years. Through it all, here is one thing that summarizes life at this church. Our shared joy in the gospel. If you want to know what marks us, here's one thing. Shared, together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't live the Christian life alone here. Joy, this is the fruit of the Spirit, not something we produce. Gospel, this is what unifies us. This is the engine, the gospel, behind all that we do. Behind our worship of God, the discipleship of God's people. Behind fellowship, missions, and evangelism. The gospel produces that. It also produces friendship. The fruit of the doctrines of grace are genuine fellowship that the world looks at and says, there's no way anything apart from the Holy Spirit can produce that. A fellowship not bound by common interests or things, but bound by the love of God for us in Christ and our unity together as brothers and sisters. As we weep together, as we rejoice together, as we suffer together, as we serve together, as we deal with frustrations and disappointments together, our shared joy in the gospel is foundational for life here, as it was for the church at Philippi. Our prayer is, God, unless you build the church, we labor in vain. It is a Holy Spirit-dependent prayer. In the midst of trial and ups and downs, God will complete the good work that he has begun. So our stamina and strength is not ultimately what will continue. God will continue, right? Our determination, that's not the final measure. The promise is God's, that by the Spirit, God the Father will bring us home. Paul says this to the church at Philippi. He says, you know what? You're growing. Ten years later, you're maturing. But don't get puffed up. Because Paul says, I not only want you to start well, I want you to finish well. There was an older man who was told by another older man. He said, you know, I'm encouraged, Irv, that you are finishing well. A lot of people don't, you know. A lot of people burst out in a sprint. But the Christian life is a marathon. Finishing well is what God promises by his grace. He says, I will finish this work and bring it to completion, God says, when? At the day of Jesus Christ. We strive for maturity, but beware dear Christian, of the deadly poison of perfectionism. Perfectionism in kids, in your spouse, in your appearance, in your job, in your church. Perfectionism is a form of legalism. It is devoid of the gospel, devoid of grace, devoid of patience with each other. God says, I will bring it to completion when? At the day of Christ and not before then. There's a reminder of this in the writer of the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We sang it earlier today. Do you know that 
later in his life, he denied the Lord. And the story goes, I'm going to paraphrase it, that one day he was sitting on a bench talking to someone, and he said, I don't think I believe this anymore. And the person quoted to him one of the lyrics from the hymn that he wrote. And he was reminded at that time of how prone to wander we are, we all are. And he was also reminded of God's steadfast, immovable, sovereign, preserving grace. Emmaus Road, as we end this series today, may 1 Peter 5 be our encouragement. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a promise that you who began this good work in us will carry it to completion on the day of Christ's return. Father, you are the God of all comfort. Comfort us in our affliction. Help us in our struggle, in our doubts, in our wandering, to be reminded that you have loved us with a perfect love in Christ, a love from before the foundation of the world, and that you will always keep us by your Spirit in that perfect covenant love. Oh God, may you do this. May you be glorified among us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.